So this last week, I had coffee with a friend, and we were discussing how many people say, you know, if God just showed me a sign, then I would believe. And if you've been going through the Gospel of John with us week by week, you know how certain you are that that is not true? We've seen him feed thousands with five loaves and two fish, and still there's unbelief. But there are people today that will continue to say, if God would only show me a sign. And imagine God does something miraculous in their life, but their eyes are still not open to the things of God. Most likely, they'll go on social media, on Facebook, and say, man, you wouldn't believe what happened to me today. And they would describe everything that happened was the providential hand of God, but they didn't see that. And they said, man, it was such a coincidence. It was just crazy how this occurred. And they would discuss these things and not see the spiritual significance of what was happening. Interesting. We've studied in John chapter 6, verse 44, that Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, gives him spiritual eyes to see. Think about this. No one comes to Jesus unless the Father draws him. That God chooses you for salvation. Think about that. God chooses you for salvation. I picture myself in, in like this massive orphanage, and I'm talking massive, millions and millions of orphans. And I imagine this potential father showing up and walking through this orphanage and seeing all these orphans. And the lady's taking him through. The lady works there and saying, well, there's Sally. You know, Sally, some days she's real sweet and some days she's not. Just depends what day you get. And there's Billy. Billy always works really hard to impress others. Oh, but over there, there's Robert. He is such a booger. He's a stinker. He's a thorn in my side. He's always getting under my skin. Let's keep walking. And imagine that potential father stops and makes eye contact with me. He says, no, we don't need to go any further. I choose Robert. What? Me? She just told you, you don't want me. She gave you a glimpse of my baggage and said, I'm a booger. It's much worse than that. But he says, no, I, I choose Robert. You know, in, in human thinking, that would be insane to think of. We wouldn't think of someone going to an orphanage and seeing somebody and saying, oh, that's the bad one? Yeah, I'll take that one. Any others? They would look at, who, who are the good ones? Let me find the ones that are acting appropriately. But to imagine going in and selecting the ones that you knew there were issues. It doesn't work in human thinking. But with God, all things are possible. With God, all things are possible. My heavenly Father, your heavenly Father, he knows all of my past, all of my baggage, all of my sins, and he still chose me. And you this morning, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, he knew your past, he knew your sins, he knew all of your baggage, and he still chose you. Let that sit and just like, I was going to say percolate, but maybe percolate to the place where it explodes after that. Let it just sit there for a moment that he would choose someone like us to take us out of darkness, to make us light. And what would be the natural response of one who's taken out of darkness and made light? Well, as we'll see this morning, it's called worship. So if you're taking notes this morning, the title of the message this morning is The Believer's Response. And that's worship. And we're going to pick up where we left off in the Gospel of John, John chapter 9. We're covering verses 8 through 38 this morning. 
So you can go ahead and open your Bibles to John chapter 9. Some of you found it already. As you get to John chapter 9, let me pray as before we get into God's Word this morning. Father, we thank you that we gather together this morning in this place. And Father, we have shown up in this place to gather, to hear from you, to worship you, to see you revealed through your scriptures. And God, we know the only way that can happen is through the power of your spirits. We pray this morning that your spirit would teach us. Father, illuminate this truth to us. Draw us ever so close to you that we might be those who worship you in spirit and in truth. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 9 actually begins with Jesus leaving the temple. And as he's going by the temple gates, he stops and he sees a man that was born blind. Been blind his whole life. And Jesus stops and he sees the man. And then his disciples begin to question, well, whose sin was it? This man's or his parents that have made this man blind? And Jesus said, that's not what it's about. It's about that God's glory might take effect right now. That people might see the glory of God and the workings of God. And then Jesus continues in a way that we couldn't describe of of how to heal, but instead this time he decides to spit on the ground, make some clay, put it on the blind man's eyes, and then told him, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And the man went away and he washed. And once he came back, the Scriptures tells us in verse 7 that he was seen. This man was healed. Now we pick up at verse 8, and we're going to run through verse 38 this morning, and we're going to see five different conversations that happen about this. That when God is working, people begin to talk, and there are different responses to what God is doing. So we're going to start, and if you're taking notes, you can write these down, but honestly, they're just showing you the different conversations that are happening. We're going to see the healed man and his neighbors. We're going to see a conversation between them. We're going to see the healed man and the Pharisees. That'll be part one. They'll do it twice. We'll see the Pharisees and the parents of the healed man. We'll see the healed man and the Pharisees, part two. We're going to come back for more. And then where we'll really camp is the last one, where Jesus has an interaction, a conversation with the healed man. So let's begin this morning. We're going to walk through these scriptures together this morning. If you have your Bibles open, John chapter 9, verses 8 and 9, we begin. It says the neighbors, this is of the of that beggar or the blind man, the man who was now healed. It says, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Now wait, stop. What are they marveling at? That he can see. He's got sight. Wait, isn't this the man that was born blind? There's evidence something has drastically changed. A blind man who has never seen is now seen. Look at verse 9. Some said, it is he. Look at others said, no, but he is like him. But the man himself kept saying, I am the man. And it says he kept saying it on and on. He kept saying, I am he. I am the guy. But there's people standing before him going, eh, he's like that guy. It's not that guy. A miracle has occurred. People have seen it, and some say, Definitely, this was the blind guy, and now he's seen. And others go, no, that couldn't happen. This isn't him. He just looked an awful lot like him. Interesting. You know, the same thing is said of Jesus. People will excuse the one who was on the cross. And some would say, well, it wasn't really Christ. It was somebody who was just like him. The same thing going on here, pushing it away. 
Continue with me in this text in verse 10. So they respond to him. They said, well, if it's you, then how were your eyes opened? Verse 11, he answers, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. Now, I don't know what they were expecting to hear, but what they heard was not what they were expecting to hear, I'll tell you that much. What? This man named Jesus. Well, the very next verse says, okay, then where is this man you speak of? Verse 12 says, where is he? And the man answers, I do not know. So picture this in your mind. Jesus sees this man blind, makes the mud, puts it on his eyes, tells him to go wash, and Jesus carries on. Sent this man, this man is now seen. And it's evidence in front of others that he's now seen. They want to know, where is this Jesus? And he says, I don't know. And they go, okay, we need to step this up a little bit. We need to take this man to the religious leaders, and we need to talk to them about it. So as we continue through this text, we see the next conversation is going to be the healed man and the Pharisees, starting in verse 13 and 14. So these neighbors, they bring this blind man who's now healed to the Pharisees, And verse 14 says, it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. If you've been studying through the Gospel of John with us, you know the significant that John brings up again the point that it was the Sabbath day. Anybody remember what happened back in chapter 5? Jesus healed a man who had been an invalid for 38 years. Everybody saw it. They saw this man was healed. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders, didn't care that he was healed. What were they concerned about? It was a Sabbath. How dare this man break the Sabbath? And from that point, they have attempted and tried to kill him because he healed on the Sabbath. Well, Scriptures record that Jesus did a lot of things on the Sabbath. Even his disciples went out and picked grain on the Sabbath, and Jesus defended them. But why is it specific that John's saying on the Sabbath? Well, one church, Jesus is displaying his authority. His authority is on display. Luke chapter 6, verse 5. Jesus said, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He has authority over the Sabbath. By the way, think about the Sabbath. God instituted the Sabbath. Why? Who was it for? He said, keep it holy. But for whose good was the Sabbath? Anybody know? It's for ours. Sabbath was a day of rest for us. It was supposed to be beneficial, not burdensome. But the religious leaders of the day made it burdensome. They made it a weight upon people's shoulders, all these rules and regulations, do's and don'ts of the day. But God instituted it so you'd have a day of rest, a day of healing, a day of restoration. I don't know about you, but as I get older, I like little power naps now. And I know some of you have talked to you, you enjoy your little power nap. God instituted a whole day to get rest. A day off that we would get rest. Jesus said in Mark chapter 2, verse 27, He said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It was a blessing to us. Now what is Jesus doing on on the Sabbath? He's blessing others. He's healing others. He's giving others rest. And they've missed the whole purpose of the Sabbath. They thought it was about a bunch of rules. 
Don't do anything. How dare you spit on the ground and make mud? Jesus, don't you know you're working when you do that? How dare you pick up that mud and put it on someone's eyes? Don't you know you're working when you do that? This is what they're accusing him of. How dare you heal somebody on the Sabbath and make him see? Don't you know it's the Sabbath? You guys seeing something here? Like, are you missing it? Are you not seeing what's going on here? Continuing our text, verses 15 and 16, the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And this man, this healed man says to them, well, he, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. That's real simple. There's no, nothing real extraordinary. There is just simple. This is what he did. He says, it says, some of the Pharisees said in verse 16, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how could a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. When it speaks to them, these are now the religious leaders fighting amongst themselves. Some are saying there's no way this man's sent from God because he's breaking the rules of the Sabbath. He's actually working. But what work is he doing for the good of man? That's what the Sabbath was for. It's a day of healing, a day of rest. But there were others saying, wait, how could a man, if you say he's a sinner, how could he do such things then? He can't explain it. A man can't do works of God. They're saying if he's a sinner. So now they turn to the blind man who is now healed, verse 17. And they say again to the blind man, what do you say about him? Since he has opened your eyes, and look how he responds. He says, he is a prophet, meaning he's sent from God. He's sent from God. Before he told the neighbors, a man came and did this. Now he says, a prophet came and did this. We're going to follow as he goes through this, but he's saying, this guy is definitely sent from God. This is definitely a man from God who has done this thing. And church, guess what? They don't like that answer. Again, I don't know what they were looking for. This man's like, look, it was simple. This man saw me. I didn't see him. He saw me. He came over. He, he said, he, he spit in the ground. He put stuff on my eyes. He told me to wash, and now I see. It's simple. And they want to prove this miracle didn't take place. They want to prove Jesus is not the one who has done this thing. So they now go and they question the man's parents. So they're going. It's an interrogation now. We see the Pharisees and the parents of the healed man in verses 18 through 23. Starting at verse 18, it says, The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight. It's like a courtroom. Bring in the, the next witness. Here come the parents. Verse 19, they ask him, Is this your son whom you say was born blind? That's a question a lawyer would ask. Is this him? Yes or no? Is this your son? And if so, how then does he now see? And look at his parents' answers. Verse 20. We know. We're certain. This is absolutely our son. And we know for certain he was born blind. There's the evidence. It's submitted. But now they kind of cower in their response. Follow me in verse 21. But how he now sees the parents say, we do not know. 
nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. And now John writes this little parenthetical insert, gives a little information of why the parents backed off a little bit. Read with me in verse 22. It says, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Now, understand the culture of the time. If you were put out of the synagogue, that was your whole livelihood. You were a social outcast. I mean, economically, you were destroyed. Everything about you, you are out of fellowship with the people. So being kicked out of the synagogue was huge. And they knew the threat, and they kind of said, you know what? We're not going to say, but there's my boy. Go ask him. They kind of threw their son under the bus a little bit. Like, just go ask him. That's what it says in verse 23. He's of age. Ask him. So now we transition the healed man, the Pharisees, part two, verse 24. It says, for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. So you got to picture this. The Pharisees are looking at a man who had never seen in his life. He now has vision. He knows that Jesus is the one who's given him sight. And they're saying, you need to agree with us and call this man a sinner. They want him to blaspheme against God. So you must agree with us. And this, by doing this, you will give glory to God. You'll be seen high in our eyes. You need to agree with us. They're trying to persuade him, manipulate him, away from the truth of Christ and to defend their position that Jesus is not the Messiah. But look at his answer. I love this simple answer. This man has been radically changed. Look at verse 25. He answered, whether he is a sinner Speaking of Christ, he says, I don't know. He says, but one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Church, that's called a testimony. He just gave a simple testimony. Look, I don't know all the theology behind it. I don't know every, everything that there is to know. But what I do know is what happened to me. You know, I've heard people say, you know what? The reason I don't believe in God is because there's no evidence for God. While I'm looking out at a crowd right now, there's a whole lot of evidence out here that God exists because God has transformed you. He's renewed you. His spirit dwells within you. There's a whole lot of evidence. How do you explain the person that went from living a certain way, an absolute, complete change, a person that only cared about those three people I've talked about before, me, myself, and I, and now all they care about is a pursuit of Jesus? What's the explanation for that? Was it a, a New Year's resolution? Because we try those. They last three days, and then we're back to what we are doing before. You can tell by my jacket being so tight. Those resolutions don't last very long. But the transformation that occurs in Christ, the testimony, this man was physically blind. He now can physically see. He goes, look, I don't know everything, but what I do know, I can tell you. I was blind, and now I see. Church, that's a simple testimony but it's a powerful one as he stands before them. They respond to him in verse 26. Well, what did he tell you? Or what did he do to you? Excuse me, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And if you recall, this is not the first time they've asked that question. They've asked it before. And he responds and says, I've told you that already. And you would not listen. Why 
do you want to hear it again? And then he gets a little snarky. And he says, do you also want to become disciples? Ooh, he's kind of rubbing it in their face a little bit back. Like, they keep asking the same question over and over and over again. They're not listening to the answer. They don't care about the answer. And then he gets a little snarky with them. Look, in John 9, 15, John chapter 9, verse 19, John chapter 9, verse 26, three times. 15, verse 15, 19, 26, they've said, how did this happen? He's told them over and over and over again. They don't care about truly knowing. They're trying to dismiss that it ever happened. They don't like when he gets snarky, church. Most people don't. These are the religious leaders. Those who think they know everything and own everything that's theological. And look at verse 28. They reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. Okay, Jesus has already addressed this fact that they pride themselves in being disciples of Moses. Jesus said, if you were disciples of Moses, then you'd be doing the things of God, and you'd be believe in me. It was back in John chapter 5, verse 46. Jesus told him, look, if you guys believed in Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. They're going to puff themselves up. We're the religious authority. We're those that know everything, and we're disciples of Moses. These are self-righteous people, self-righteous individuals that are blind to the truth. And they say about this Jesus guy, we don't know where he comes from. Even though these same people have been accusing Jesus of, one, being born out of sexual immorality, of coming from Galilee, they actually do know a lot about him. But here, just throwing it out in defense, we don't even know anything about him. It's not true. They do know about him. The man continues. It's amazing what he says. Look at me in verse 30. Here's his answer. He says, why? This is an amazing thing. Stop there for a second. He's looking at them. Church, he's never seen them before. He's been blind his whole life, and he's going, you guys, this is amazing. There is someone who's been sent from God that now opens the eyes of the blind. Listen up, religious leaders. There's somebody who you've been waiting for who scriptures say will open the eyes of the blind. He's here. He's here. He says, this is an amazing thing. He says, you do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. Verse 31. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Do you remember what they wanted to accuse Jesus of? They wanted the blind man to say, Jesus is a sinner. And he goes, if he's a sinner... God's not going to listen to him. God's not going to use him to heal the blind. God doesn't listen to sinners. We, we read in, in Psalm chapter 66, verse 18. The psalm says, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. He says, If this guy is who you think he is and who you say he is, God's not going to be using this guy, listening to him to heal the blind. But he says, If he does follow the Lord. If he does listen to him, then God will hear him. He says, if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God will listen to him. Again, we read in Psalm chapter 34, verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. 
Again, in Psalm 145, verse 19, he fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. God hears their cry. This man is now defending Christ. Saying this man has to come from the Father. He has to be sent. He is the one who has sent. He is the Messiah. And church, as we've seen these Pharisees, as they get schooled, in what they thought they were so knowledgeable in, they get very frustrated. And they become very childish in their response. Because they have nothing left to defend their position, so now they get personal. And if you ever talked with somebody, and you've shared truth with somebody, and they're out of excuses and a defense, all of a sudden it becomes a personal attack. It's about your character, about other things. And look what they say to him. Right before we get there, let me finish up verse 32 and 33. It's actually 34 I'm speaking of. It says, Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. This is what he tells them. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And here's their response. They tell him in verse 34, You were born in utter sin. And would you teach us? Listen to what they said. Like a little baby getting beaten... (laughs) They stomp their feet and go, oh, you, born in utter sin. We, the self-righteous, you're going to tell us who he is? We should know we're the righteous. And look what they do next. They cast him out. You're done. You're not coming back in the synagogue. You've been, in a sense, excommunicated from fellowship with us. You are done. You are dead to us. Now, here's the interesting thing about this man. Born blind, that culture, there was nothing for him. There was no welfare system, nothing to take care of him. He had to become a beggar. Once part of the synagogue, he now sees he's in there. He's back. He's healed. I can now be part of the people. And he gets kicked out again. Still nothing else to support him. No people, nothing else. He's cast out. And here's where we focus it on this morning. Jesus and the healed man. Here's the conversation. Starting in verse 35. Look what it says. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him. Stop there. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. They had ostracized this man that had been ostracized his whole life. Jesus stopped the first time when he saw this man was blind and he had compassion on him. Jesus now hears they've kicked him out. And it says Jesus went and found him. He went seeking, went searching. That sound familiar of what Jesus does? Jesus, Luke chapter 19, verse 10, says, For the Son of Man, speaking of Jesus, he came to seek and to save the lost. He's a seeking Savior. He's come and he's found this man. He's heard. He was kicked out and he comes. Picking back up in our text, verse 36. Or excuse me, verse 35, Jesus says, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And verse 36, the man answers him, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Stop there. You ever been fishing? If you have, usually fish don't jump in the boat. But miraculously, that's exactly what's going on here. God is drawing this man, and now he's asking the question. 
much like when we saw after the Spirit was poured out in Acts and we see people saying, how must we be saved? He's saying, how do I know him? Who, who is he? And Jesus responds and says to him, you have seen him. And it is he who is speaking to you. And look at his response. He said, Lord, I believe. Lord, I believe. How much was in that response to the Lord? Lord, I believe. You know, we can really complicate the gospel. We can put all kinds of things in the gospel. This man turns to Jesus and says, Lord, I believe. And that belief, the genuineness of it, is what follows the natural response of belief. Look at what happens at that verse. And he worshipped the natural response of a believer is worship. Look, there, there are many who can say, I believe in Jesus. And belief could be a head knowledge. I know the facts about Jesus. We live in America. If you don't know the facts about Jesus, then I don't know where you've been your whole life. Because the facts about Jesus are all over the place. They're on bumper stickers and, and, and posters and TV stations. The facts are there. And most people could even articulate the gospel. Oh, yeah, I know Jesus died. And then he rose from the dead and he paid the price for my sins and whatever. It's head knowledge. This man went from head to heart. And we see that because of his response. His response was to worship, proskuneo, to fall on his face before Jesus in reverence, to worship him. It's amazing. It's an amazing response. He says, who is it that I might believe? This word believe is the core of this whole gospel. John has written this for this reason, to believe. He started in chapter 1 of this gospel. In chapter 1, verse 12, we read, but to all who did receive Christ, him, Christ, who believed in his name, God gave them the right to become children of God. Believe. Those who would believe in him be given the right to become children of God. Jesus talking to Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. John chapter 6, verse 40. Jesus says, for this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, he says. John wrote this entire gospel that we might believe. We know at the end of the gospel, chapter 20, verse 31, John said these things are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Church, do you think it was a coincidence that when Jesus left the temple, he saw a man born blind? There was no coincidence there. Jesus had chosen that man unto salvation. And he began with a work in his life at that point. And that man didn't even know what was going on. Some man came to me, some man named Jesus. He told me to do these things, and I went and did it. And as that percolated a little bit, he went, no, no, this man was definitely from God. He was a prophet. And then he told Jesus, well, who is the Son of Man? Jesus says, look, it's me. And he says three words. Lord, I believe. Lord, I believe. Complete transformation of this man. From our text this morning, there are three implications I want to talk about this morning. Three implications from our text. 
The one thing we see is this man, as God works in his life, we see opposition in his life. So the first thing I want to talk about, believers will face opposition from the world. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, and somebody shared the gospel with you and told you that everything's going to be perfect and peachy afterwards, they lied to you. Now, if they told you you'll have a peace that surpasses understanding in the midst of those trials, they told you the truth. But it doesn't mean everything's going to be perfect and peachy. There's going to be trials. There's going to be difficulties. In our public reading this morning, Romans chapter 5 tells us those things are going to work out good things in us when sufferings come. It's going to build endurance in us. Paul, writing to the young Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Did it say might? Will be persecuted. In John chapter 15, verse 20, Jesus says, Remember the word that I have said to you, a servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, Jesus said, they're also going to persecute you. So know this, if you turn and receive Christ and you become a believer, you're transformed. You go through the amazing thing that this blind man has gone through. Lord, I believe. The Father has drawn you. Know that persecution is coming. You know, there are some who come to Christ. They, they receive that draw and they come and they go, wait a minute, things are difficult. You ever seen a salmon swim upstream? All of a sudden, things are going against them. What's going on? When you become a Christian... That's kind of what it's like. Because your worldview has completely changed. It used to be like everybody else's, and you went with the flow of everything they did. But now, you have a biblical worldview. And now you're swimming upstream. And people are going to say things. Just like this man received the attack from those around him, so will we. Second thing I want to talk about this morning is what Jesus starts, he will finish. What Jesus starts, he will finish. We read in Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 2, that look to Jesus. We're to look to Jesus and that he's the founder and perfecter of our faith. He's the author. He's the one that's begun it. And he's the finisher. He's the one that starts it. He's the one that finishes it. And church, if you're a believer here this morning, sometimes it feels kind of rough. You're like, is it? are, are we going to get there? Are we going to complete this? What Jesus started he will finish. When he saw that man at the temple gates, he spit on the ground. He put the mud on his eyes, told him, go wash. That's not what it was all about. It was about what just happened in verse 38. Lord, I believe. What Jesus started at that temple gate, he finished. And what he started in our life, he's going to finish. Jesus said this, John chapter 6, verse 37, he says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will, listen, never cast out. Church, there's great hope in that. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're one who have received Christ, you've turned to him in repentance and faith, and then there's some days you're thinking, am I really saved? If the Spirit of God has come and dwelt in you, if you've gone from darkness to light, it's not based upon performance at that point. It's based upon Christ. It's based upon him. And there will be some bumpy roads. But here's the beautiful thing. The one who's begun it will continue to pour grace upon you to get you all the way to the end. That there's assurance of salvation in Christ. It's not for a season. It's not like, I sure hope I will. If you come from a different background, maybe you're a Catholic background. Catholics believe, I hope I've done enough good that God will accept me. That's not how it works. 
Christ died in our place to pay the full penalty that satisfied the Father. He took all the wrath that we rightly deserved upon Himself. And in exchange, He gave us His righteousness. Think about this. When you stand before the Father, He doesn't see you. He doesn't see the little booger Robert anymore. He sees Christ and His righteousness. It doesn't matter how I feel. It doesn't matter if my mind's dwelling on something from the past, some shameful thing. God sees His Son's righteousness, that I am clothed in that. What Jesus began, He will finish. And thirdly this morning, last thing, worship is the natural response of a believer. Worship. It's not head knowledge. It's not that I can go on Jeopardy and get all the answers right. It's that my life is transformed to a life of worship. And for many of us, we hear the word worship and we think, oh yeah, that's music. Put on some music. Let's sing. Songs about Jesus. You could sing a song of praise. It could be classified as worship, but that's not what the Bible speaks of in our response of worship. It's our life being submitted to God. It's being yielded to Him that He is the one that's begun this. He's the one that's finished it. Now I'm following. Guys, follow me. Worship. That instead of living for my glory, God, you've done all this. I'm living for your glory. That the life I once lived and I destroyed in the destruction of chasing after sin, and God's redeemed that, forgiven that, given me a new life, now I'm living it for your glory. That's worship. So how often does that happen? It should happen all the time. It doesn't happen Sunday morning for an hour when we gather together. It's moment by moment. Jesus, when he was speaking to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, verse 23 and 24, He said, the hour is coming is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Put it this way, head and heart. That I must know the truth, but the truth must come out in genuineness. That there's both. You know, I think I've mentioned this before. I had somebody... Ask me why we must worship. Why are we commanded to worship God? And there's an idea that Christians have to worship. You're commanded to worship. Look, somebody who has received the grace of God, someone who has been forgiven of their sins, someone who has been delivered from the domain of darkness and made light, it's not a command. It's an immediate response. It's just what comes out. It's like saying to that person who's been delivered from darkness to light, saying that they were commanded to worship, would be like saying to a starving man, putting him at a buffet and say, you're commanded to eat. You don't have to command a starving man at the Golden Corral to start eating. Trust me, it's going to be a natural response. He's going to jump in, all of them, into that food. Just like a genuine believer is going to jump into worship. That God, you have redeemed me. You have created me. You've made me new. Worship's more than a song. It's a lifestyle. It's continually submitting ourselves to God. It means when we wake up, first thing on our mind usually is, I got things to do today. First one, Lord, help me to bring you glory in all that I do today. Look to Jesus to put him there. Church, that's a natural response. Why, if, if you're a believer here this morning, why do even thoughts and songs of praise even bubble up within your heart that you start to speak? 
Why is it that we put words on this board and you might have been somebody before who would have never sung in public and all of a sudden you're singing in public? Why does that happen? Because the genuineness of what's happened within you. That there's transformation within you. This morning, just like we've seen this blind man who's been radically transformed, that same opportunity, that same calling of Christ would come out to us this morning. That if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, he would say, come to me. Believe that I am he who came to die in your place, to pay the penalty for your sins, that I rose from the grave, that I conquered sin and death, and that you can be forgiven and have eternal life. He says, come. That's a response between you and him. To come, to turn from living life your way, and to turn to him. And as we saw from this blind man who was healed, he said three words, Lord, I believe. And that was evidence by the way that he turned to worship. Let's pray this morning. Father, what a glorious portion of Scripture that we were allowed to share this morning. Looking how Jesus began a work in a man, and Jesus came and completed it spiritually in the man of bringing him not only physical sight, but spiritual sight. And that he will finish that when he glorifies this man forever. Father, we are here this morning. Many of us have experienced something similar. That you've taken us out of darkness and you've given us light. Father, may we be girded up this morning knowing that there is opposition in this world. Father, that we would stand strong in your grace. Father, that we would be reminded that what Jesus has started, he will finish that he will grant us endurance to run the race. Father, I pray that our, our life would be a continual style of worship before you to bring you glory in everything that we do. And God, for anyone in this place, you know the hearts of, and minds of those in here. That perhaps they know the facts. They've got the head knowledge. They can answer the questions. But they've never turned to receive Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name that you would draw them to yourself right now, that they would respond to you, receive Jesus, believe in him, and their life would be transformed. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.